0: Hello, you are listening to Maghreb in Past and Present Podcasts, a space dedicated to history, art, culture, politics, sociology, anthropology, and many other subjects. This episode is part of the Society and Politics in the Maghreb series and was recorded on March 11, 2021. In this episode, Jacob Mandi, Associate Professor of Peace and Conflict Studies at Colgate University, interviews Ahmed Eddin Badi, Senior Political Analyst at the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime, about Rethinking State Formation in Post-Gaddafi Libya. This podcast is part of the Supporting Critical Research and Strengthening Scholarly Capacity in Algeria, Libya, and Tunisia project, organized by the Centre d'Etudes Maghrébines Tunis, SEMAT, and the Centre d'Etudes Maghrébines en Algérie, SEMA, and funded by the Carnegie Corporation of New York.
1: Hi, uh, this is Jacob Mundy, Associate Professor of Peace and Conflict Studies at Colgate University. I'm joined today with Ahmad Badi, um, who is probably one of the leading voices, uh, public intellectuals, I think, on Libya today to talk about the current situation in Libya, his research, and what he sees uh, or where he sees Libya going. In the future. Um, so Ahmad, do you want to introduce yourself? I know you wear a lot of hats, so I wanted to make sure that we get all of them correct.
2: Yeah, so um, I'm Ahmad Addeen Badi. I'm a Libyan. I, yeah, I indeed do wear many hats. I am a senior analyst at the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime, where I pretty much focus on everything related to Transnational organized crime in Libya, its political economy, smuggling, uh, et cetera, et cetera, migration related also dynamics. I also work uh, with the, as non-resident senior fellow with the Atlantic Council, where I focus on foreign policy towards Libya, uh, particularly European and American foreign policy towards Libya. And I'm also an advisor uh, for the Geneva Center for Security Sector Governance, where I work on primarily on security sector reform and its subcomponents. So uh, pretty wide thematic focus, I'd say, but uh, pretty narrow, although quite expanding a little bit, at least uh, beyond Libya. But yeah, pretty much Libya specific.
1: And you recently completed a degree, right?
2: Recent is relative. Yeah, a year ago, I wrapped up my my master's uh, at the end of 2019, actually, September 2019. I wrapped a master's in violence, conflict, and development at the School of Oriental and African Studies. And then I went on to do a six-month fellowship with the School of Transnational Governance at the European University Institute in Florence. which was quite a change of scenery.
1: <laughs> cool. Yeah, thanks for that background. Um I, I, let's start with the present. Um, Libya has taken what often appears in the media, at least to take a, a kind of 180 from where the situation seemed a year ago, two years ago. And uh, it maybe has come as a surprise to some people, uh, but what is, I, I know you've recently, you've penned an assessment um, that was maybe a little bit negative of what's happened. Do you wanna quickly recap uh, where the peace process is at and why you and uh, Wolfram Lasher were a bit skeptical about where it's going?
2: True. Um, so yeah, to take us as you mentioned a bit back, two years ago, the situation is virtually unrecognizable from what it is today. Two years ago, we didn't have two of the primary, technically, countries that are now influencing the Libyan landscape even remotely named as as primary interveners. Today, the Turkey and Russia are the primary foreign powers intervening in Libya. So there's that geopolitical dynamic that is completely new. And as you mentioned, the developments in Libya are somewhat oftentimes com- nothing happens for a very long time, then everything unfolds in a matter of weeks, if not days. So we recently actually had a uh, political process happen. Happen. Um, my assessment with Wolfram, which I stand by, technically speaking, still a little bit at least, and which has proved proving to be correct, at least in terms of the recent development, is that the political process has rehabilitated kind of the Libyan political elite. After the ceasefire that was uh, announced last year in October, that allowed the kick the kickstarting of a political process of 75 members that gathered in Tunis and subsequently in Geneva, which voted on a new executive. This new executive has now, uh, yesterday really, just been approved by the House of Representatives in the city of Sirt, and uh, is now about to take on its duties. And the expectation is that it will lead us to elections by the end of the year, normally.
1: Do you want to say something about, you said that the, the elite has somehow managed to reconstitute itself? Do you want to unpack that a little bit?
2: Yeah, I mean, the Obviously, I do, despite my assessment being negative, it's not necessarily a bashing of those that did the, that heralded the process or that led it. It's more of an assessment of what is likely to unfold, given the dynamics on which the dialogue has been built and uh, what might transpire, having seen how things transpired previously, both because we did have a government that was brought about by a consensus before of the international community to allow political process to move forward, namely the Sherat uh, Agreement uh, in 2015, that you could argue by and large failed, owing in part to domestic uh, divisions, but also international community divisions. Those have by and large, I think, persisted, but unlike in 2015, you no longer have policy imperatives that existed then, like the uh, counterterrorism focus or the counter-migration uh, focus that drove really the process then. Today, it was it is more about containing Russian influence, containing Turkish influence, uh, strategic threats uh, to NATO at the Libya border, really trying to avert really uh, Libya becoming a new Syria, so to speak, basically, with with the obvious differences in terms of foreign interveners. But that's the rationale that underpinned this entire agreement. But the domestic divisions are still there. Uh, There are still loopholes in the agreement that can, and you could argue, have already been kind of weaponized, even as part of the endorsement yesterday. There was an obvious kind of misdirect in terms of not actually just endorsing the government and not endorsing everything that was in the Libyan political dialogue Uh, forum uh, prerogatives, kind of. So there's always these loopholes that Libyan actors generally seek to weaponize just to keep themselves relevant to the process. And that's a familiar pattern. And that's what the negative kind of outlook was based on, which unfortunately is proving to be correct. The other dynamic, which is relevant, perhaps more relevant to this government is that it is by design was almost forced to rehabilitate this elite by having a maximum number of ministerial portfolios, creating patronage networks that transcend the conflicts divide. And the problematic aspect of that is that first of all, by having such an overblown kind of government, you are significantly constricted in your ability to reform the economy on the one hand, which is crucial, which is one of your goals really. On the other hand, to improve services, which is another one of your goals. And then you have... on the off chance that you placate enough factions by including them in government, then it really is at cross purposes with having the goal of elections at the end of the year. So the assessment is negative, but it's more a symptomatic of rationality rather than just optimism uh, for no reason.
1: <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, we recently spoke with uh, Amalo Beatty, uh, who's a part of the, the same project that the, um, you, know, you and I are a part of through SeMat, and. Yes you know, her assessment is sort of, you know, that you can find good governance at the local level, but it's at the national level that you find um, more corrupt uh, levels of governance. Would you agree with that?
2: It depends how you define governance, I would say, because what the mandate, I mean, if you look at it from a a mandate point of view, what is afforded in terms of uh, local governance to the actual institutions, the municipalities locally, are basic services. Uh, and those basic services, uh, their quality, I would say, differs between locales. And the other, the other one would be security, which is, by and large, in most, in most cases, at least, uh, sustained locally as well. So those, to a degree, you could argue, function. But the really problematic aspect of things is definitely at the macro level, because the country was not the system of the country that we inherited really from the Gaddafi era was not designed to be productive. The institutions were designed to be patronage networks or to be uh, basically predated upon, which is what happened once Gaddafi was gone, basically. So yeah, I would, I would agree with that assessment with the caveat that what is supposed to be done locally is very basic in the first place.
1: <laughs> so yeah, you bring up the legacies of the, the Jamahiriya and Gaddafi. Do you um, and that was your your thesis and uh, article you recently published in Mel? Do you want to for the listeners? Do you want to connect those two things? What what are the salient legacies uh, and how that's kind of set up Libya to fail after the revolution?
2: Yeah, I mean there are obvious obviously certain failures that are attributable to the Libyan political elite post two thousand eleven. I'm not I'm not one to completely scapegoat Gaddafi, but what he left us with had there not been a kind of national will to reform things, which didn't really transpire post-2011, was set up to fail. It wasn't designed to be managed by anyone but him or another authoritarian, which is part of the reason why I believe we're now caught in this divide between really a kleptocracy that is preserving a centralized dysfunctional system in uh, Western Libya and essentially Haftar uh, in Eastern Libya, which in a way you could argue is recreating the Jamahiriya with with a few discrepancies and differences in terms of how he's levered foreign influence in that process. So there's a whole other dynamic on that front. But uh, my thesis actually was essentially looking at continuities and discontinuities of order in Libya's history. So what was constant? What changed? Was the change organic? Uh, was it Gaddafi manipulating certain pillars of Libyan statehood that existed before and trying to... Uh, use those or weaponize those to garner legitimacy or sustain his, you could argue, uh, oppressive rule or uh, society's complacency in different ways. And uh, it was looking at different facets of things, economic, uh, social, political, over time, and how these morphed, and then the effect those had those pillars of statehood had or their morphing over time had on dynamics post-revolution. So you're kind of looking at Libya's history, which is often omitted really from the discourse because we're an understudied country, at least post, uh, pre-2011, we weren't really a country which had massive knowledge production, partly because of Gaddafi, really. So uh, that's part of the reason why I decided that my thesis would kind of be me breaking away from the contemporary dynamics really zooming out and looking at why we are where we are today. And people agree or disagree with it, but I do, I do think that part of the blame was on that institutional apparatus that Gideffi had set up.
1: Do you, I mean, there's sort of, you know, there's various theories um, The, you know, a lot of people overplay the role of co- coercion within the Jamahiriya, but it, it was certainly there certain people overplay the role of cultural hegemony or influence um, that sort of thing, tribal divided and rule type strategies or, or rentier theory, just sort of placation through infrastructural development and massive social spending and, and a huge, hugely bloated um, state sector in terms of employment. Um, but I always think that Libya doesn't really fit a lot of models of you know, the quote unquote, the Arab state um yeah. where do you where do you see it diverging from those you know from you know the rentier approach the coercion approach the you know social manipulation approach
2: yeah i think that i mean not to be a proponent of libyan exceptionalism but I, as you pointed out it doesn't really fit into uh any of these theories while uh, at the same time you can clearly discern certain patterns that converge with either one of those so There's definitely a rentier aspect to Libya's economic system, but really uh, the effect of rentierism is not necessarily only felt at the level of the economy. It's really almost affected the political culture. So it's permeated spheres beyond the economic, really, and you can clearly see that even in today's politicking around state institutions, which are ultimately viewed as Patronage networks, and that that's how they're approached. And then there's the element of tribalism, which I also tackle in my thesis. And I do believe that it has morphed over time, basically at least within certain constituencies. The notion of tribalism now is no longer necessarily affiliated with uh, the original idea of your kin, but is now more affiliated with uh, really social relations that sometimes transcend. Relations and you have that's why you have a lot of Libyans now. I've been on Clubhouse recently, a lot of Libyans are discussing the deep state, so to speak. So, you have these uh, networks behind the scene, and it's really interesting to look at the interlinkages between them. And those are not necessarily tied to blood lineage or the ideology, so to speak. So That's why I don't think tribalism is exclusively the dynamic through which to look at Libya. Then you also mentioned the idea of uh, oppression. Um, I do think that Gaddafi's rule definitely had totalitarian aspects to it. But how that was engineered in a way was also a component to it was also securing society's complacency, basically. It wasn't necessarily threatening them. You didn't have you had an element of a police state. But you also had an element whereby people were just comfortable with what Gaddafi was telling them or what the the expectations that he set them up with were. And uh, now, 10 years later, after the revolution, people have short memories at times. So there's also a longing for that period, that romanticization sometimes of that period of people forgetting uh, what was what was happening then.
1: What else are people talking about on Clubhouse? In Libya clubhouse.
2: Oh, they're talking about all sorts of things, to be honest. I've been in rooms that were really set up to speak about the uh, contemporary political developments. So the government's endorsement, for instance, there was like a seven-hour discussion yesterday around that expectations of the new government etc yeah people have a lot to say and i think bearing in mind that obviously clubhouse is a kind of elite app in a way people speak english for the most part at least and a lot of them reside abroad and you have to own an iphone etc but even amongst that group of sorry segment of society people still have a lot to say uh but in broader terms there are also people that want to discuss things beyond the contemporary and just look at other, other dynamics uh, really. So, yeah.
1: Interesting. Uh, one, of the, one of the things that struck me about recent developments in Libya is thinking about the populations are just somewhat exhausted by um, now, now going on 10 years of sort of upheaval and, and not knowing what the future is gonna hold and armed conflict and terrorism and, and things of that sort. And I wonder. I know. I know we've already broached the issue of compare, <laughs> comparison. Often, doesn't really help with Libya. But in thinking about you know a, a polity that is exhausted by civil conflict but hasn't really resolved those tensions, and I think I often think about Lebanon as a country that you know fought until it just got really tired. Uh, but then the the status quo was sort of how the how the war ended, and that became. The you know the the very complicated situation you have in Lebanon today, which isn't which is I guess filled with tension. You could say if yeah. if Libya decides to that you know we're going to stop fighting and the status quo right now, what do you think that looks like going forward in terms of you know Libya as a as a polity, uh, in terms of central governance, things of that sort.
2: Yeah, this, this is very much around a question, like similar to a question I was asked yesterday actually by a friend who said, do you think in this instance at the moment, corruption or this extent of patronage, this overblown expenditure and large budgets, et cetera, do you think that will sustain peace? And uh, And my answer was to an extent, yes, but in the process, you're kind of setting yourself up for failure. And a lot of people are, uh, by the way, making this Lebanon analogy, uh, this dysfunctional status quo, so to speak, and that's what they partly expect from this this new government, at least at least some of the some of the Libyans. And uh, I think that's problematic because if you keep that system in place, you're technically losing out on any opportunity for reform any opportunity for youth inclusion, you can look at the elite in Lebanon and the age or intergenerational gap between them and young Lebanese. And uh, the other aspect of things is also the suffrage process. A lot of people were yesterday positive because we now have a unified executive, but for the most part, they're not happy about it being this government. They're happy about First of all, the unification aspect that this government brings about and then the suffrage process that it is supposed to deliver. And I think that if this government basically sustains peace through corruption, then we lose out not only on the reform aspect of things, but the suffrage aspect of things. And uh, that's problematic because the I, mean, I remember how happy we were in 2012 maybe less so in 2014 when we elected, but definitely in 2012 when we had the 60% turnout for national elections, etc. People were, for the most part, delighted about engaging in kind of a democratic process. And it was amazing because for a country that hadn't, that didn't have that political culture, so to speak, it was kind of a rejoinder to a lot of these theories about having to educate people about this etc so there was clearly a widespread at least amongst young people a widespread desire for change and uh, losing out on that just to avert award and to rehabilitate a, an elite seems a bit of a downer but let's see what this <laughs> let's see if there's genuine desire amongst this new government to really go beyond what they what they said where they set their expectations at right now
1: and what power um I know Haftar is still out there and Russia is still on the ground and Turkey is still invested in um, its role in Libya. Uh, but I look at the scene and I think, OK, there, there's, there's a lot of spoilers, but there's very few kingmakers in this situation. And Haftar is certainly no longer, um, if he ever was, you know, in a kingmaker kind of position. But that's a, it's still a scary position to be in when you have, you know, whether whether it's, you know, petroleum facilities guards, you know, all the way up to, you know, someone of, of Haftar's level. What is, the, what is it like living in a country where everyone has the, this like spoiler power to kind of, you know, interrupt, sabotage, you know, do that kind of thing?
2: I mean, you can clearly see in the past at least five years, we've had, After wasn't the only spoiler, he was just the most prominent amongst them, and the fact that he had a proclivity to territorially kind of expand is why he was singled out as one of the most problematic, I would say, spoilers. That, uh, aside the the significant foreign support you could argue he he benefited from, but we're still, as you pointed out, left with a significant number of spoilers, both domestic and now also international uh, in a way. And these spoilers, at least the international ones, have intervened in Libya. You could argue that their interventions have been quite costly. And now they're expecting to basically get what they put into the country and secure economic incentives or economic dividends. And that's scary because when you mix that that picture with a dysfunctional, you could argue corrupt elite that has now been rehabilitated with a massive budget, and with oil, you could argue flowing, and even the prices are rising right now. And that's a, a really bad mix for the for the Libyan economy, for the goal of elections, for the goal of reform, for youth inclusion, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I don't think that. And as you pointed out, the interventions of these foreign powers haven't really stopped in a way. So the political process is almost deflected from all of that going on, and they're still. Preparing for war in a way, while just allowing the political process to unfold and seeing whether this new government will accommodate them. I don't know whether the GNU will have any leverage over them in terms of making them leave. Uh, it really depends on the multilateral kind of impetus behind the GNU in the UNSC. But you have to also bear in mind that the United Nations Security Council is itself divided and those divisions haven't really been resolved. So the expectation that the government of national unity can actually kick these foreigners out is is a bit over-optimistic based on my assessment.
1: <laughs> and so I always hate these questions of like, well, where do, you, where do you, you see hope coming from? And I know we've had a lot of 10-year sort of retrospectives of the, the Arab Spring and, and you posted on Twitter some photos of what appeared, I think at the time, you know, for you personally was a, a more Uh, one with a a bigger horizon, that sort of thing. Do you think that there are ways that we can frame Libya that are perhaps more hopeful than we often see in the media? You know, this failed state discourse on it. Yeah, it depends
2: on which generation you're affiliated to. I mean, I was, I was what? I was 17 when the revolution happened. I'm 29, oh, sorry. I'm 18, I'm 29 now. And that decade, really passed by like a blink of an eye but so much has happened in it and what's what's sad but at the same time makes me hopeful is that in a way the the fact that we the root causes of the revolution are left unaddressed means that there is room for another revolution to happen probably not my generation But if there are any clear signs that I can see right now from conversations that I'm having with younger people, uh, et cetera, is that they're learning from our mistakes in a way. So, and in this kind of cycle of injustice, effectively both the domestic elite and the foreigners intervening are churning another revolution really at one point or another. And they're going to be faced with far more of a resolute and experienced group of people than than we were, and I don't think that those will waste the chance that they'll have for change. So that's that's the silver lining from my perspective. It might be bittersweet, but at the same time, I do think that it's incumbent upon me and kind of my generation that learned or try to experience kind of setbacks and learn from our mistakes to learn how to pass the baton, inculcate or give them opportunities to also advance and really affect change in the country, whether from inside it or outside it. But yeah, that's, that's what drives me forward. I'd say.
1: So something that maybe looks like the Iraq and Algeria or the protests in Sudan. Something.
2: Yeah, definitely. Those have, I mean, you could argue that those constituencies had even learned from their history why, uh, they might want to postpone in back in 2011 they might want to postpone mobilizing during that period and they were far more shrewd about it and if anything i mean we're not we're not living in an island as as young people but we're we're ultimately right now still seeking kind of uh, knowledge from other contexts etc and experiences from other contexts so even libyan youth are learning uh, from those movements. And they're looking at them. Granted, it's difficult sometimes to pay attention to things beyond the day to day. But if anything, if 2011 was kind of proof of anything is that once change kind of swifts through, it's <laughs> really quick and really unexpected. So you could see change really happen overnight.
1: Great. Well, let's leave it on that note then. Um, so Ahmad, thank you so much for your time. This has been a great conversation. Sounds good. Thank you, Jacob. Appreciate it.
0: Thank you for listening to Maghreb in Past and Present Podcasts. Other episodes are available on our website, www.themaghrebpodcast.com, as well as on iTunes and Putbeam. For more information on our podcast, like our Facebook page, Maghreb in Past and Present Podcasts, subscribe to the CMAT newsletter at www.cimatmaghreb.org, or visit the webpage of the American Institute for Maghreb Studies. See you soon for new episodes.